Okay, so Michael said it'd be like eight and a half years before we're done with this thing, right? It's not true. It'd be like seven and a half. Now, if you've been uh, um, here since the beginning, you know where we're at. We're in uh, week 26 um, with this study. And if you're new to New Hope, uh, what you want to know is that uh, we've got about 14 weeks left in this particular study um, that we're looking into, trying to understand better the, the end times things, the events that will take place in the last days. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, is our guide for that. People are fascinated with the end times. There's regularly polls that come out. People want to know statistical analysis about what do people believe about the last days. There's one that just came out this week. I was reading through uh, uh, Fox News, and they showed a statistical survey that came up from the, the Pew Research Group. Pew Research Forum, and this is the statistics that they found when they asked the question, and here's what they asked, are Americans divided on the end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ? Uh, The Pew Forum research came out with these statistics, 41% expect Jesus will definitely show up by 2050, 49% he'll definitely not happen by 2050. Okay, so since the majority is always right in the United States, we know it's a long ways off, right? Now, we don't know. People have gut feelings. They watch the circumstances going on around them, but we don't know. So we study, we look at what Jesus said will be the signs of the end times. The things that we should examine are found in the headlines many times. This week I was thinking, what if tomorrow morning you woke up and you picked up a newspaper or you got on the internet and you saw these headlines? These are the things that came up on the screen. Here's the first one. Oil no longer gushes into the Gulf. Unexpected solution found. That'd be a pretty great thing, wouldn't it? We'd be happy about that. Next one, I thought, what if, what if the Arizona immigration border was solved? Arizona immigration problem comes to a favorable end. All illegal aliens return to Mexico. The Chinese government releases all political and religious prisoners. That would be a cool headline. I'd love to see that one. What about this? The Dow Jones Industrial goes over 14,000. That'd be fantastic. Most of us are tired of having the losses that we're having. What about this? John Hopkins University announces that they found a cure for cancer, a recent genetic discovery. Here's a big one. What if you read this one? The nation of Israel and world Islamic countries ratify long-term peace treaty, a historical negotiation. Now, if you watch the end times, if you study the book of Revelation, if you're a student of the last days, you know that that one would get your attention, wouldn't it? It'd cause you to step back and say, wow, I'd be looking for somebody to be arriving on the scene who would be the one that Scripture describes as the Antichrist, the beast, the one that we studied about with the Mark 666. That's where we're going to go today. That's what we're going to look at, understanding more of the behavior of this one called the beast, the one with the mark, 666. When you think of these headlines, what if you thought of one single individual being responsible for bringing all of those headlines into fruition? What if one guy was able to solve the oil problem, was discovering cancer, was bringing peace to the world. You see, that will be the environment in which the Antichrist arrives. He will step on the world political scene as a powerful leader. 
and he will solve the Middle East peace crisis, something no one has been able to do. That, Scripture tells us, is the beginning of the tribulation period, the beginning of the literal seven-year period of time. If one guy could do all those things, would people not rush to his door to exalt him to leadership position? A philosopher and a theologian, Francis Schaeffer, said this statement. You'll see it on the screen. People will give up freedom to gain security. It is true. That's what's so remarkable about the founding fathers of the United States of America. The founding fathers gave up security to establish freedom. The opposite of that statement. But they're a rare breed. Most people, they'll give up freedom for security. They want peace. They want to know that things are going to be stable. That's the basis for the rise of dictators in the world. People shouting for peace and safety. And when someone arrives on the scene and says, you want peace and safety, I've got the solution. Here's what it looks like. Scripture says that that will be the case in the last days. Look with me on the screen at 1 Thessalonians 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Everyone will be looking for peace and safety and saying, we want it. What will bring that about? Myself, as a person who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture, I believe that the removal of the church will cause so much turmoil on the earth. People will be looking for someone who can bring some solution and step on the scene. But regardless of that fact, there is obviously a desire for people to see terrorism to go away. We don't want to be threatened anymore. And so when a powerful leader steps on the scene, he promises peace and safety. So I have a question for you to ponder this morning as we work through this passage. Where does your personal peace and safety come from? Does it come from economic strength? From political strength? From perhaps your job security? You are not unlike the disciples in Jesus' time in which they encountered opportunities to ask him questions on a regular basis. Realizing who they had in their midst, they were constantly in dialogue, practicing what we call today the Jewish art of questioning. Ancient Jews were extraordinarily good at asking very hard questions. A rabbi who was even better than the common Jew was very good at taking that question and turning it back into another question. You notice that with Jesus constantly when people come to him asking him questions, he always responds with another question. That's what's going on, the Jewish art of questioning, causing the person that you're in dialogue with to really ponder what they just asked. There was a specific moment when Jesus was talking about the end times and his disciples came to him separately and asked for an indication, what will be the sign of the last days? Look with me up on the screen. You'll see it in Matthew chapter 24. This is what it says. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now, do you find that very interesting that they came to him and asked for a sign of the end times? And what he used as an example were false teachers? You would think he would say, well, there'll be lots of earthquakes. Well, there'll be lots of famine. There'll be lots of war. Well, he does talk about that later in Matthew chapter 24. But the first thing he says, there's going to be false teachers. The truth is there's been false teachers throughout history. Since the time of Christ, apostates have stepped on the scene leading people astray. It is true. They look good, apostates, false teachers. They talk good, but they're false teachers presenting false truth. So Jesus said, do not be misled, for many false teachers will step on the scene. Why did he want us to know that? Because Satan's appearance throughout history is rarely ugly. They come across as being very polished, extraordinarily skilled speakers, oratorily polished. But Jesus says, beware. You've got to back it up with the word. Does it support the word of God? The repulsiveness of Satan is exposed in Revelation chapter 13. That's why we learned last week that the Antichrist is called the beast. And the false prophet you're going to learn this morning is called the beast. Scripture has to call them what they are because to our visible eye, to look at them on the world scene, he will be extraordinarily attractive, handsome physically, intellectually attractive, a gifted politician, and a military leader. So when that one steps onto the scene, you have to step back and say, is he an angel of light or an angel of darkness? We were pointed to that in 2 Corinthians 11. You'll see that on the screen that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. If you take three symbols, and type them into your search engine on your computer later today. Type in the number six. Type in the number six. And type in the number of six and hit enter and see what comes up. You will be shocked at how many people think they know what the Antichrist looks like. I got 104 million responses back of individuals who believe they understand what 666 means. What Scripture presents to us this morning is a better understanding that this individual will be the most eloquent, gifted, skillful, powerful, convincing speaker that the world has ever known, and he will be able to persuade the world. We have all seen politicians very quickly rise from obscurity to national and global prominence because of their gifted oratory skills. Not because of their proven track record, but rather because they talk good. And because they talk good, people believe that, well, let's follow him. He has a hope. He has a promise. So therefore, we should chase after that individual, only to find that that individual might be leading them down the wrong path. The major weapon you're going to find in Satan's arsenal this morning is deception. Deception with a capital D. Jesus spoke to this issue, John spoke to this issue, and Peter spoke to this issue. You're going to see three verses from each of those individuals who talked about false teachers. We'll start with Jesus first, Matthew 7, 15. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 2 Peter 2.1 There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. 1 John 4.1 Same John who wrote the book of Revelation wrote this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You'll find this morning that Satan's final deception, the deceiver of the world, will be to bring on the scene a partner to Antichrist. The powerful world ruler, Antichrist, the one with the mark of the beast, has a false prophet, a religious leader, come alongside him, and political power and religious power are woven together, and they work harmoniously. We desire, as a people, to worship. We are wired that way. You were made to worship. That's the way God made you. And so, very interestingly, like Michael said when he was standing at the piano, when times of crisis come along, people seek spiritual answers because we have a void in our life. The void is the absence of God. And God placed that hunger there for us to seek after something bigger than ourselves. You'll find that this anti-teacher, this false teacher, is going to bring people to the point where they have to choose worship God or worship the Antichrist. John Phillips summed it up this way. He's a theologian. You'll see his quote on the screen in talking about the, anti, or the false teacher. The dynamic appeal of the false prophet will lie in his skill in combining political expediency with religious passion. His arguments will be subtle, convincing, and appealing. His oratory will be hypnotic, for he will be able to move the masses to tears or whip them into frenzy. He will control the communication media of the world and will skillfully organize mass publicity to promote his ends. He will manage the truth with guile beyond words, bending it, twisting it, and distorting it. He will mold world thought and shape human opinion like so much the potter's clay. So if you have your Bible this morning, open to Revelation chapter 13. And verse 11, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. You'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you also that you can use. What you're going to see now is a joining of political power and religious power. Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So John sees another beast after the beast that we learned about last week, the first beast, he sees another one. The word another that's used here is alos. Now, I have a Bible here that's the NASB, New American Standard Version. You may have a King James Version or an NIV. The NASB is alos to your Bible. They're both the Bible. They're both God's Word. If I have my Bible here and I had a children's fairy tale or a bedtime storybook, that would be heteros, meaning another of a different kind. But John says he sees here another of the same kind, alos, meaning just like the first beast, I see a second beast, a leader who's coming up on the scene. Jesus just told us in Matthew 7, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. You look very closely here and you see that there's another beast, another of the same kind, and what does he look like? He looks like a lamb. This beast professes to represent 
truth. How do we see Jesus when we look at Scripture? The Lamb of God. So this one appears on the scene as a religious leader. A lamb, a lamb though that has the voice of a dragon. Have you ever heard a lamb talk like a dragon? Have you ever heard a lamb talk, by the way? I'd like to know, first of all. Now, I haven't, so this is symbology. We understand that he's speaking of an evil voice. What did we learn in the book of Revelation in the last three weeks? That the dragon represents who? Satan. So what John is saying is, I see one that looks like a person who speaks truth, but when he speaks, his satanic nature is revealed. He has the voice of a dragon, and he's alluring and deceptive. What is it that led Adam and Eve into sin? Was it Satan forcing them to take a fruit and disobey God? Or was it the alluring, deceptive speech? God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be as God. God doesn't want you to be that way. That's alluring, deceptive speech. So that's what John sees here. But he speaks with the voice of a dragon because John has discernment. So instead of speaking against God, this individual comes as a religious leader, he speaks rather the praises of the Antichrist and exalts the Antichrist so that people will worship him. False teachers often appear mild, harmless, gentle as a lamb. But when they speak untruth, they are the voice of Satan. If they will not support the word of God, if they're saying peace and safety, all will be well, You could be watching for sudden destruction because that's what Scripture promises. So let's look at verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great. There's that word again that we learned about a month ago, megas, huge signs. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Who do you think of when you think of fire coming down from heaven? Elijah, God's man, God's prophet from the Old Testament calling fire down from heaven. And we learned a few weeks about about the two witnesses of God who are able to call down fire from heaven. This guy's doing the same thing. Where does he get his authority? It says he exercises all the authority of the first beast. What did you learn last week about where the first beast got his authority? From the dragon. So you got a three-way tie here. The dragon gives his power to the Antichrist. The Antichrist gives his power to this beast. And what does he do with it? He performs great megas signs. And he gets off to a rip-roaring start because the Antichrist, midway through the tribulation, is killed, as you learned last week, assassinated, and then resurrected back to life. And because it is such a powerful appearance, this false prophet seizes on that opportunity to exalt the Antichrist. He solved world peace. He brought an end to the Middle East crisis. He eliminated terrorism, and now He even has power over death. Praise him. Exalt him. That's what's going on here. Verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the sign which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. This word deceive, the third word used in the sentence there, is the word planao. 
Planao is where we get the word planet. Our planet, planao, has its root in a Greek term. What it means is wander. So when the ancients looked at the planets in the atmosphere and said they are planao, they meant they are wandering through the atmosphere, moving around in orbit. This is what this false teacher does. He deceives, he causes people to planao, to wander away, to move away from the truth. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. By doing what? By performing signs. You remember that when Jesus was on the earth, only for three years, people were constantly coming to him saying, give us a sign. Prove it. You say you're the son of God? Prove it. Give us a miracle. What was Jesus' response to the generation? Because he said, you're an adulterous generation. You desire a sign. You will get no sign except for the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days, buried and then resurrected, released. That was the sign that Jesus gave. Yes, he performed many miracles, but this one performs his miracles so the whole world can see him. His greatest sign that he develops is called the abomination of desolation. You've heard that word used if you've been in the Revelation study right along. The abomination of desolation is something that I want to explain because it is a literal object. It is a symbol of the Antichrist. I'll explain that in just a minute. Do you notice, though, that they attempt to validate their authority in the same way that the prophets of God did? The true proof for a teacher of God was that they would do two things. They could perform a mighty miracle like Elijah and they would be faithful and true to the word of God. Satan can perform miracles. Satan's agents, the demons, can perform mighty miracles, mighty acts. I only have to take you back to the time of Egypt to remind you of what we studied a year ago. We saw Moses come into the presence of Pharaoh, Pharaoh standing before his throne. Moses performs a miracle in the presence of the king of Egypt. What does the king of Egypt do? Hey, brought his sorcerers in and asked them to do the same thing. Look with me on the screen, Exodus 7:11. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. No discerning, mature Christian believes everything they see when it comes to activities like this. Because there are miracles that Satan can perform. So a discerning, mature believer should never lose sight of the fact that false teachers have power. They can do amazing things. What's the test? What's the true test? Are they faithful to the word of God? Do they exalt the name of Jesus Christ? If they don't, they're a false teacher. So explicitly we're told that this one deceives the whole world by causing them to wander because of the signs that were given to him. Specifically, how does he do that? The image of the beast is exalted to the point where people begin to bow down before this image. Look with me at the text. The image to the beast had wounds. He's come to life. He compels them to make this image. This is at the high point of the Antichrist's power, middle point of the tribulation, The Antichrist has never had more power than the midpoint of the tribulation. And now this false teacher comes alongside him and his persuasiveness is incredibly powerful over the world. These two merge together and all of humanity buys into it. 
And so this one, this Antichrist, demands that a statue be built in his image. This statue I believe to be megas, great, huge. Go back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, an ancient king who ruled over Babylon, and he compelled the people to build an image of himself that was so large it could be seen for up to a half mile away. Nebuchadnezzar's image was so great that everyone had to bow down to it. You see it more recently in Baghdad. When we watched the Middle East War unfold, we saw this magnificent statue of Saddam Hussein that had been erected in this town square of Baghdad. We also watched as people pulled it down and rejoiced, didn't we? Saddam Hussein had insisted that that statue of himself standing like this with his arm before the world be exalted because he was the powerful leader of the nation of Iraq. This one will do the same thing, except it will be found on the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation placing himself on the temple in Jerusalem, run to the hills, get out of the town, because this one is about to turn incredibly evil. He will no longer be the world's peaceful ruler. He will come and launch an attack. So verse 15, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. When I read this, I think of the Wizard of Oz. Remember that part where Dorothy came down the center aisle and the curtain falls away and the little man is behind the curtain and he said, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Remember that scene? This is what I think of when I think of this because this image that's been built is an image to exalt the Antichrist. But there's a real power source behind it. I believe you're looking at a literal miracle, but a black miracle. I think you're looking at demon possession activity. Demon activity in which this image has been given breath to talk. Here's why I take this literally out of the Scriptures this way. There's three words that are used in the New Testament in Greek for speaking about life. The first one is bios. The word bios, speaking about activity, daily activity. And the other one is the word zoe, Z-O-E. But a third one is the word pneuma. And it means the breath of life. It means activity based with intellect. A spirit being. Look with me at the definition for pneuma on the screen. A current of air, breath, a breeze, a spirit, that is, related to human, the rational soul, superhuman, an angel. So what we're seeing is a statue that I don't believe to be controlled by technology, but rather will be a talking image of the Antichrist. And it compels people to worship the Antichrist. So who stands behind this image? Who's the puppet master working behind him? Satan. Satan is the puppet master making this image work. And it's so powerful that it causes people to turn to the Antichrist and begin to worship him to the degree that if they do not worship him, they will be executed. So the next text that we move into is about the mark of the beast if people refuse to worship the Antichrist. Look with me on the screen at verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, 
the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Do you note with me who he compels to have the mark? The rich and the poor, the free and the slave, the small and the great. Everyone. There is no choice. You choose God or you choose the Antichrist. This false prophet requires everyone to receive the mark. And most likely, this mark will be presented as a technological advancement of some type. Right now, we obviously have the system to control people through the number system. Mechanisms are already in place, and they have been in place for many years to manipulate world economies based on number systems for individuals. That's not news to us. It's been around a long time. I do remember back in the 1970s thinking, how in the world will they do that? How can the world, can they possibly control? Technology was not far enough advanced for people to all be given a mark of some type to control individuals. But more recently, we can see very clearly how this could happen. Currently, today in our day and age, we understand that in high security areas, for someone to get to the next level of security, they have to have a retina scan or a voice imprint. Voice imprints are only done with two words to recognize who an individual is. That would be considered old technology compared to what's available today. Just in the last year, a computer chip was developed that is so tiny that it's the size of an ink pen tip and can be injected through a needle into someone's arm to track an individual. It sends out a signal. Now, is that the mark of the beast? No, I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're looking at something that an individual will use to control the world's economy and individual's behavior patterns. Right now, today, as we sit here, there's a legislation a bill that's been introduced sitting in Congress. It was introduced a year and a half ago. I would not have given it a lot of credibility except for the fact it was published in the Wall Street Journal and it was introduced by one of the major medical journals here in the United States. It's a legislation, uh, the pending legislation, that was introduced by uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican out of South Carolina, and a Democrat, Chuck Schumer, out of New York. Interestingly, a Democrat and a Republican came together to write this particular bill, and it has to do with illegal immigration here in the United States and health care. Because they understood about two years ago that health care eventually was going to become a reality here in the United States, these individuals began introducing and writing this legislation to see if they could get through this requirement. If you are going to receive nationalized health care in the United States, you will need to prove your United States citizenship. So through the nationalized health care program, what Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham have proposed is that biometric scanners be set up in major cities around the United States in which individuals will scan their right hand underneath the scanner through an infrared system to prove first that they are an American citizen before they can go into the doctor's offices to receive treatment. And if you can't verify that you're an American citizen, you will not be able to enter the building. Now, that is just here in the United States, and if that legislation ever makes it through, we have no idea. It just gives us an example of where technology is at today. One physician who was in the first service came up to me afterwards, and he said, you understand, don't you, that the right hand is as unique in the vein signature as your fingerprint is on your hand or your thumbprint. It's a very remarkable vein signature that's different to every single individual. 
and it can't be duplicated. No, I didn't know that, but I was glad to hear that validated that way. Here's where this really comes down to. Satan knows what Scripture teaches. He knows that when you believe something, when you own something, you have to represent it. The forehead and the right hand are two very obvious parts of your body. It cannot be hidden. You cannot conceal it. So it takes me back to this question that Del Tackett asked. If you've gone to the Truth Project at all, you've heard this question. Do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? Let me repeat that for you. It's a hard question. Do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? That's what believers are going to face when this question presents itself, presents itself to them. Because the effect of this mark is economic. No buying, no selling means no cars, no electricity, no air conditioning, no groceries. You can't pay your water bill. You won't be able to buy formula for your children if you have a small baby. It represents itself to the degree that it will control the health care system. We're talking globally, not just locally. So here is a question for you. What would you do? See, if bread is $100 a loaf, there won't be any sharing going on. There won't be any, let's feel good and have the neighbors over for barbecue. This is survival. So what would you do if you were faced with this situation? See, that's the buying part. The selling part is eBay is going to be useless. There's no garage sales going on either. People won't respect those who don't have the mark of the beast. There's nothing that will be approved. This is enormous pressure to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Right now, in the day and age in which you live, it is easy to blend into society and no one know whether or not you're a believer. Save for the fact that you might talk about it at work or that you go to church. How would anyone know? In this day and age, it's highly identifiable. Everyone will understand. Do you remember very interestingly what God required the children of Israel to do when he gave them his word? He said, you will wear my word as frontlets between your eyes, meaning the forehead, and on your right arm. He valued his word so greatly, just like Satan values this mark. You will show people who you belong to. And that's why Satan has chose this. One mark for one purpose, to identify who belongs to him and who belongs to God. But he's using it through an economic system. Branding of slaves goes way back. Back in the time when John wrote this, they were commonly branding slaves on their arms to show that they owned them. It represented whose property this is. Satan is seeing these individuals as his property. And I want you to understand, this is more than an economic issue. Think about what the forehead is. The forehead represents where you process thought. Everything you think is what you do, who you are. Right hand is how you carry out that commitment of what you think and what you are. So it's not by any accident that it's the forehead and the arm in which we carry out those activities. It's the outworking of the commitment. What happens to those who do not take the mark? 
Who refuses to receive the mark of the beast? And what happens to those who do take the mark? Well, those who do take the mark, we're told very specifically in a graphic way what will happen to them. Revelation 14, 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's graphic. But this is God drawing the line in the sand. You're either for me or against me. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Those are the words of Jesus. I belong to Jesus or I don't belong to Jesus. And there you see it played out in black and white. Identification like this gives temporary prosperity on earth. But long-term consequences, ultimately, eternal death. Some suggest that this mark is, because the word kargma is used, um, this word kargma was used by the Caesars back in the time of Rome to indicate what to be done with the economic prosperity individuals had. So a kargma is like this. If you pull a quarter out of your pocket, the bottom of your quarter has a stamp, a kargma on it, and it says, in God we trust. Founding fathers understood that when they put a currency system together. The kargma, the currency, represents who you belong to. What you do with your economy represents what you believe in. So this kargma, because this word is used meaning I engrave, it's a Caesar word, I engrave my kargma, I take the mark upon me, it means this individual controls the world's economy, controls the world's military, controls the world's politics, and controls the world's religion. I can put this in very modern terms for you. There's a man who came out of communist Bulgaria a few years ago before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he wrote a diary about what it was like to live with a rationing card. You'll see his quote up on the screen. You cannot understand and you cannot know that the most terrible instrument of persecution ever devised is an innocent ration card. You cannot buy and you cannot sell except according to that little innocent card. If they please, you can be starved to death, and if they please, you can be dispossessed of everything you have. For you cannot trade, you cannot buy, and you cannot sell without permission. So John takes us into the next verse because he says you need wisdom to understand what's going on here. He talks about the number 666, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. 666 is the number of the first beast, not the false prophet that we've been learning about. The Antichrist, the one who has the name that we try to identify through 666. What does that mean? Ancient languages did not have a numerical system like we have today. Ancient languages, like the Hebrews and the Greeks, 
use the alphabet system to represent numbers. So therefore, think in terms of our alphabetic system. A would represent one, B would represent two, C would represent three. In the Greek system, alpha would be one. However, when they reached the number 10, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine would represent the first nine letters of their alphabet. When you reached the 10th letter, it jumped to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. When you reached the next section of letters, it would jump to hundreds, 100, 200, 300, 400, and so on. So interestingly, in Jesus' case, Jesus' name is interpreted, Aesus in Greek, is 888. The beast is 666. In Hebrew, Jesus' name is interpreted 749. There's an interesting piece of graffiti that was discovered when Pompeii was excavated. Historians were working through the city and they saw a piece of graffiti on a wall. Uh, two young lovers were trying to show their love for each other and they got out ancient spray paint cans apparently and painted on the wall and it's still there today. This is what he wrote. I love her whose name is 545. I don't know if that meant a lot to her, but she probably could identify herself. It was common in this day and age to understand numbers and letters are symbiotic. They work together. So here's what Scripture is telling us. It's not those with mathematical skills or numeric capacity that surpasses everyone else that's going to be able to figure this out. It means that when this individual arrives on the scene, those who have discerning, wise minds will look and understand that this one with the number 666 is the Antichrist. That's why they say, with those with wisdom, those who have understanding, it takes time to process this. Every single exegetical analysis that's ever been attempted to discern and attach this number to someone in the past has failed. Obviously, it wasn't Nero. Obviously, it wasn't Napoleon. Obviously, it wasn't Hitler. They just as recently as the 1940s tried to do that. So it's someone in the future. Whether or not he's a long way off yet, we don't know. But I can tell you this, all speculation is futile. However, everyone who does not name the name of Jesus Christ will receive the name of the Antichrist, 666, or 666, somewhere on their forehead or arm. The indication of his name. This incredibly brilliant military strategist. And it will be a logical thing for people to want to associate themselves that way because he will control the economic power. So you come to the end of this and you say, well, what happens to these people? That this false prophet, we already read about those who take the mark of the beast upon them. What about the false prophet and the Antichrist? What does Jesus do with them? Here's a verse that will show you as we wrap this up. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is a serious passage. It really speaks seriously of how God values his word and people being led away from the truth of God. And it requires wisdom and discernment to understand when you're hearing false teaching and when you're hearing truth. So there's two things that really pop out to me. First of all, this is a huge warning for people who are not believers in Jesus Christ. 
People who hear this, you know, there's hundreds of people who listen to our broadcast on a regular basis. Some who are not believers who listen to this stuff on the webcast. And they have a responsibility to do something with this. There are individuals who come to our church on a regular basis who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. They're working through the process. You have a responsibility if you fall in that camp to figure out what you're going to do with this information. Because God says you're either for me or you're against me and you're going to have to make a decision. I've known of individuals who have said, well, I'm just going to wait for the tribulation and watch all this play out. And when I see that it's really real, that's when I'm going to buy in and I'll profess Christ. Wow, that's a risk to play. That's a big risk to take. Here's the second part. For believers, for those who name the name of Christ, you are challenged to share the truth of the word, what you know to be true, to present it in such a way that you're not offensive to your friends, but you're emphatic with the truth. This is what Scripture says, and I believe it. I say that I really believe that what I say I believe is really real. And let me take you to it and show it and explain it to you. Scripture says that you have to be godly people with all this knowledge in mind, to live with that thought in mind. Since we started studying Revelation 26 weeks ago, I found myself feeling like I'm carrying this weight on my shoulder. You probably are feeling some of that as well. Myself, perhaps even more so because I'm studying it constantly. But the burden of the knowledge of this information causes us to live with such a mind that we live in view of eternity. I'll take you to one last verse to remind you of our responsibility. It comes from 2 Peter 3. This is what he said about the last days. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'm going to let you go, but I want you to realize one thing. These people living in the last days had a choice, just like you have a choice. It was not forced upon them. No one held them down and tied their hands to the ground and stamped them. They have to decide just like you have to decide to be discerners of the truth, process the information, and make a decision which place you stand on. So with that in mind, I'm going to send you out with those heavy thoughts, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet together as individuals who want to know more and understand these truths. Um, we'd be pretty quick to confess some of it is a pretty big mystery. But the things that you've chosen to reveal to us and that we can process and understand, we've done our best to attempt at this morning, God. And so I ask for each of us here that you would use the power of your Holy Spirit and give us personal application to our life what it means to each of us as we walk before you day by day. As we go out of this room now and as we take on activities tomorrow, we ask that you would walk with us 
And for those who are walking with you in honoring you, we ask that you would bless our activities and that you would be in the midst of them and that we would be found faithful to you. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.